who has never been to Ananda before? Are some of you have never been here before? Is there anyone? You know, a few of you. So, welcome. You are in a crowd of old friends, as you can see. So, um, a, a certain there are a certain amount of assumptions that will be in place here, and I'll do my best to bridge the gap. Some of you are newer, even if you're not brand new. Um, our subject for tonight and for the next eight weeks is the subject of money. And this is part of an ongoing series, uh, just to, uh, all of you know this, but I want you also to understand that my intention was not really that I was so interested in the subject of money. Um, I, my own relationship to money is quite comfortable, but I don't, I'm not that involved in money. So I'm, in a certain sense, I'm an odd person to be teaching this, although a couple of months ago I was asked to teach a Saturday seminar, and I quite surprised myself by how much I had to say. Uh, on the subject, and uh, so in an indirect way, I've had a, uh, I have a very, I have this kind of an understanding about money, which is what, what this book is about. But this series of classes was really based on my desire to go through a lot of the books that were written by Donald Walters, also known as Kriyananda, who's the founder of Ananda, and make more clear especially to people who are committed to this teaching, sort of what the wisdom of these books is and what the self-realization approach is to many, many subjects. And so because the last two books we have done were very much devotee-oriented and spiritual path and discipleship, I thought a little change of pace would be in order. And so we picked up this book. Of course, if you've already read it or haven't read it, I was going to suggest right away this is a very short book. This isn't like the others that we've been slogging our way through. So the best thing to do would be to read it from beginning to end if you haven't already, because it's not much to do. And then just focus on a few chapters at a time, because otherwise the unbearable suspense of, <laughs> of the method, you know, it, it, I, I realized I was going to end up spending you know, six weeks on theory and then just a little tiny bit on what you do about it, and we need to integrate it a little bit more. So, uh, presumably, we'll, we'll just sort of work it out as best it works. Um, this subject also is, of course, very um, intensely personal and, for many people, very problematic, or it feels problematic, whether it actually is or not, um, in your actual life, but it still feels problematic to people. Therefore, it's the kind of class that lends itself well to your questions and your um, asking for clarification because it's a very, very pithy book. You know, just after slogging our way through Gyanamata where there were just so many, many pages, this one you just, I sort of read the assigned section and bingo, it was over. I just started and it ended. Um, but, the, but it's very pithy. Swamiji himself just recorded this book. He's been putting his books on tape. Unfortunately, we don't have a copy of it. But at the end of it, he said, my, that's a very good book. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, as I'm sure you all thought reading through it, there's a lot more in it. Now, the reason there's a lot more in it than, quote, just money is because money is actually an extremely central um, part of life. And it's not inherently that we all need pots and pots of money, but because money and energy are uh, the same thing, and since energy is the real definition of our life experience, Money, uh, money gets really in the middle of things. And Swamiji emphasizes, as he has always emphasized in the very practical nature he has through the years at Ananda, 
and he starts right at the beginning, you know, there's nothing inherently unspiritual or evil or wrong about money in itself. It's just a form of energy that can be used or misused, depending on who's going to do it. And Yogananda himself said that his simple statement was, every good, noble, or philanthropic enterprise, sooner or later, comes down to a matter of money. Which is to say, it doesn't make any difference how grand your ideals are, to, for practical expression, sooner or later, money has to come into the equation. And one of the first sort of understandings that we need to come to to be comfortable with all of this is just that, that it's just a fundamental part of life. And a great deal of the difficulty that a lot of us have as we go through life is that we want it to be different. It's very simple. It was epitomized perfectly by a little child friend of ours who's now a grown man. But he, he was, as a child, he had an extraordinary will for any human being, what to speak of a child. And at one period of time, his parents and he lived in a, a group house in San Francisco. Ananda had a, a, a mansion. We rented a mansion. A big group of people lived there. Had a huge staircase that went through the middle of the three or four stories. It was all... Uh, paneled wood and the sound traveled enormously and one um, 2 a.m. time the entire house was woken up by this child who was about three at the time who'd called crawled out of his crib fully awake found himself completely frustrated because nothing was going on because it was all dark and he stood at the top of the stairs and bellowed out I want it to be morning Just like that. <laughs> Of course, it had no effect on the sun, but somehow it made him feel better that he was announcing what was going on. And a lot of difficulty in our adult forums is that in one way or another, we're still standing on the staircase, shouting at creation, and demanding that it be different. And money is one of the areas in which we just always have this thought that it ought to be other than it is, or I wish it were different than it is. And it's a very important, fundamental um, attitude to get over because of the, the basic premise that we're working with. And that's why Swami called this book Money Magnetism. Magnetism is a very key word in this. And this is what um, we start out in the first chapter of this book. You know, the question is, what is true wealth? And he starts talking uh, you know, right off the bat, that money is a flow of energy. And he says it's not even an energy that is a separate kind of energy. Money is our own flow of energy. And these are the kind of like pithy sentences that uh, Swami just puts in there that we have to, you know, untie one by one in order to really get in to the midst of this. When I was asked to give this uh, seminar on prosperity, I mean here, with no great invitation from the great world, it was here that people asked me to do it. And I stood up to talk about money and told my own peculiar story, which I'll, I'll tell bits and pieces of it probably through these weeks, but I'm not going to start right now. What I actually realized was that I, have, I, I recognize energy and I've always felt... Um, because of, of chapter two or chapter three of this, how to have uh, seek security within yourself first. That because 
I came into, onto the spiritual path at, at, a, at a relatively young age, my late teens and my early 20s, I was always directed first towards seeking security within myself. And also I, I had what I consider to be the good fortune to be raised in a family that even though we were comfortably well off, exceedingly non-materialistic, just never oriented toward things. Not, not to an extreme, but just, I, I, they never taught me that I had to have stuff in order to be anything. And they never lived in such a way that they acted as if the stuff they had had anything to do with anything. The values were not spiritual, the values were more intellectual. But nonetheless, the lesson I learned from a very young age was about who I was inside, not about what I had outside myself. So, in, in, in then getting on the spiritual path where the emphasis is so much on self-realization and so much on beginning to develop your own inner magnetism and your own relationship to the world as self-defined, then, I, I, as I realized, as I talked about this subject, that it, it, you just apply that to whatever objective is at hand. And so whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, you try to accomplish it from the inside out. I was uh, speaking to a parent, a potential parent for our school recently, actually a parent who has decided not to send their child to our school, and I was doing my very best to persuade the parent to change their mind unsuccessfully, but I haven't given up. And uh, <laughs> I was trying to explain that it's not that uh, you know, any other form of education is bad, but that the, the characteristic of Living Wisdom School, which is the school that is sponsored by Ananda, is that it's education from the inside out. The first premise is develop the person, develop their self-confidence, develop their sense of, re, of uh, involvement in a greater reality, develop their concentration, their willpower, their emotional self-control, and really, you don't have to worry about anything else because everything else follows from that. And so when Swami makes the comment that money is a flow of energy, and above all, it's the flow of our energy, in, in a very interesting way, it suddenly tells us that if we concentrate more on self-development, um, everything else will follow from that. And that's where he uses this word magnetism, and he says the very interesting statement that um, it's not just a, we, we, we attract money into our lives. And he said, and the converse of that is that if we're not attracting it, we must be somehow repelling it. He says, even though you're doing that subconsciously. Now, of course, that's going to take us the rest of this, these weeks to sort out. I sat and stared at that for a long time and thought, I think that's more than I'm going to be able to like settle on this first night. But it's a very important thought to keep into our mind. Um, because as we go, especially next week, when we talk about we are part of a greater reality, an intelligent, conscious reality that relates to us. And, and so therefore, everything that we're doing is in relationship. Money is not a thing that we're trying to get from anywhere. It's a force of energy that we're trying to get in tune with so that we can have more of it flowing through our lives. And the more we learn in our own life experience, to master our own flows of energy. And as we talk about it, Swami talks about it in his first three chapters, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. He talks about willpower, and he talks about what many of you know, the energization exercises, and how all of that is all about money. 
And he also, of course, I love the way he puts it. He talks about we have to even start from the beginning by asking ourselves, what is it that we're trying to acquire? You know, what is true wealth? And I love the way he sort of tongue-in-cheek says, you know, now that I've gotten your money, I'm just going to tell you that you don't need much money. <laughs> you know, but he doesn't really mean that. But he's also trying to say, since it's all about magnetism, it's a great deal about our attitudes. And it's a great deal in terms of our getting more in tune. Okay, let me, let me put it more like this. Often I... Um, If you're trying to attract something to you, naturally the more dynamic your signal is, so to speak, the more powerfully the universe will respond to it. The more confused the signal you're sending out, the more difficult it is for the world to respond to. Isn't that so? Um, and so when we have, even starting with this first premise, that we think that what we need in our lives is money, money is a very... Uh, broad, not a very clear idea inherently. And so when we sort of have a general desire for money, it doesn't necessarily translate into some clear, really highly focused magnetism. Because money is a means to an end. You can't eat it. You know, you can't wear it. It, it really doesn't make a very good life companion. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it just, it doesn't make music. It doesn't do anything. It just sort of sits there. Inherently, as Swami writes, it doesn't have the capacity to give us anything back. I remember I shared with some of you, those of you who have been to our house know that, uh, or have been coming to our house for a number of years, know that in the last few years we remodeled the house and redecorated and we got new carpet and the, the carpet, you know, if you've ever bought furniture and carpet, this is the second time in my life I've done it. I probably will have to do it one more time, but two is a lot. Um, you know, getting the right carpet was this gigantic thing. And it just was a big drama to get the right carpet. And then we got it cheaper, and then we had it delivered to the church because if you had it delivered to a commercial site, it was saving you a few hundred dollars instead of to a residential site. And then we had this gigantic hundreds of pounds of carpet that we had to move. And so it just went on and on and on and to empty the house. And because we're in a community, everybody's involved, you know. And so this whole thing happens. And finally, the carpet is installed. And the great moment comes when I go into the house and there's the carpet. And I sort of stood there. You know, I said, there's the carpet. You know, and the carpet just lay there, <laughs> like carpets do, and I just couldn't get, it did nothing. It had, as I, as I phrased it to myself, it had no capacity to love me back, <laughs> right? I could pour energy into it, and it was just an inert dead object. So I mean, it makes a reference to that in the, this book, that uh, if you love something, it does not have the capacity to actually give you energy back. You'll end up depleted by your love for it. You see, it's not enough. You can't just affirm it for yourself. I'm going to go on a tangent with this. But it's a very important point to understand. But now it was like ever nine or ten or eleven years ago when we had that earthquake here in um, this area. Probably a lot of you were in the Bay Area, Loma Prieta at the earthquake. You know, it was a big deal because, because we all live in the expectation that someday we'll be wiped off the planet by one of those earthquakes. So 
to have one that big where people actually died and Bay Bridge cracked and things like that. It was a big story. I remember we live, um, our, our community is right on the railroad tracks and we had just moved in and the sound of the train going by was very similar to the sound of the earthquake. So after the earthquake, you know, just every 20 minutes in the morning and every evening we thought it was happening again. And you're sort of like nervous and I thought, oh gosh, I just am so like tense from this. I think I'll take a hot bath, of course. But then the vision of being caught in the hot bath. <laughs> <laughs> so there was like no place where you could go and die. <laughs> you just had to sit around and be nervous for a long time. Um, at that period of time, I had a, I had a little window where for a few months I was going into a few corporations in the area and doing sort of like translating these teachings into leadership and things like that. It was I had a very short career. It was not my career, but this happened to be one the period when I was doing that. And this one uh, HR director um, who was working with me, uh, I'd given a, a couple of programs and she wanted me to come back, and she sort of said. You know, what can you give? What could you teach now? And I said, well, what do people need? And then she talked about the earthquake. And as it happened, uh, one of the people who died had been the wife of someone who worked in that company. So it really made everybody really uptight. Now, of course, when, when I went into the corporate world, I had to be very, very careful never to use the word God or anything that could be too recognizably that word. So we managed to do it. It can be done. And but she wanted me to make people feel better about, to not be so afraid about the earthquake. That's what she wanted me to do. And I thought about it for a while, and I said, you know, I really can't do that one without God. I just don't know how. And she said, well, can't you just tell people, and then she just sort of said, essentially, to believe in themselves, to believe in uh, anything, and if they believe in it enough, that will make them feel comforted. I mean, that's very common wisdom. But I thought back to that, and I thought, you know, you, if you, just because you have a lot of faith in something that does not have the power to give energy back to you, it'll work for a while until something bigger than your own imagination, like an earthquake, comes through, and then all of your sort of fancy dancy things won't do you any good. You believe in your house and your insurance company and your, uh, your car and your retirement plan. But, but an earthquake is a lot bigger than all those things. And, but the power of God, the power of the infinite spirit which is all around us, which is the intelligent reality of which we are a part, which is what we'll talk about next week, it has the power to infuse you with greater power than your ego already has. And so even when we are sitting here thinking that what we really need in our life is money, it's not money that we need, it's everything that we think will come to us if we have it. And by contrast, everything that we think we lack when we don't have it. Now, those are not small things. You know, a sense of security, a sense of freedom, a sense of uh, affirmation of the quality of the effort I'm putting out, feedback from the world, a sense of recognition, status, um, opportunities to do things that may be important to us, maybe the freedom to follow another course than the one that we're on right now. 
um, all kinds of things. Those are all very valid. Maybe it's the opportunity to serve. Maybe it's an image of what you would be able to do if you had that money. All of those things are very valid things to aspire towards. But none of them are actually money. But all of them are much a much more precise picture of what it is that you really want. So even though Swamiji mentions in there, and I, I know because I've read it, I have to make sure I stay within these chapters, but it's not that important. He also makes the point of when he says, don't limit your demands, which is what we read here. And he talks about his own technique of visualizing, for the most part, is not specific. Because if what you're trying to attract is a flow of energy, if you visualize it as a fixed object, a fixed object is not nearly as dynamic as the flow of energy. So you have to visualize what it is that you're really trying to achieve. And everything about life is in a constant state of movement. It's never a point, point by point. In fact, Swamiji said, by the time you can see something, it means you're already going past it. By the time you can define yourself by a certain achievement, it means it's already behind you. And so you, you, you really aren't even defined, even what we are is where we're going. We're much more defined by our aspirations. Swamiji once was encouraging people in a more profound sense of themselves, and he said, you know, if you're, he said, if you feel you must judge yourself, which I don't recommend, he's having put in parentheses, he said, judge yourself by that which you aspire to become. Because it is a much more true definition of who you are than what you have already achieved. Because wherever you are focused, that's really what you are becoming as a flow of energy. I remember when, this was now 11 or 12 years ago, when we thought about um, buying and developing a community, which we now have, as most of you know, a couple of miles from here. Um, we have a 72-acre piece of land, 72-unit apartment complex on five acres of land. Um, it was really a junk heap when we bought it, but it's really quite nice now. And it's been a wonderful place for us. And when we first had the idea of uh, developing the community um, by uh, uh, obtaining in some way an apartment complex and converting it into an intentional cooperative living situation, um, a handful of people involved with Ananda had lived in communities and knew how wonderful it would be. A few people, other people were interested and many people were quite nervous. It was a, so in order to generate the, mag, the magnetic clarity and the force to be able to do it, we, we knew we had to get people together and get them excited about the concept. And we had a, 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 an all-day retreat was one of the things that we had together. I mean, Rick was there. Who else was there? Is anybody besides Rick? Joe, were you with us then? Venetia, were you with us then? And uh, uh, we were trying to to create the magnetism to attract the community. And many people trained in, in other ways of doing things wanted to visualize the community specifically. You know, it would have a playground, it would have uh, land, it would have buildings that looked like this, it would have a certain kind of temple and so on. But we trained more in the ways that Swamiji had said it. We, we, we kept shifting it. What is it that that represents to you? What kind of energy are you talking about? You know, what kind of experience do you expect to have with that? And we kept taking the specific words and making them specific, but making them energy, consciousness, experience words. Because really, 
you know, when the people said there was a playground, what you really had was you had a sense of uh, sharing, a sense of family, a sense of, of safety, uh, a sense of a bigger reality than your own. When you talked about trees, you were really talking about peacefulness. You know, when you were talking about a temple, you were talking about um, spiritual focus. But maybe we would have a temple, maybe we would have a playground, maybe we would have trees. We ended up with a lot of those things. But we really didn't have to have any of those things. We did have to have spiritual focus. We did have to have a sense of, of, of family and belonging to each other. We did have to have a sense of peace. You see, and that does two things by changing it like that. Number one, it gives you a much more expansive way of relating to what's trying to happen. Because otherwise, it, Swami tells the story in here, that wonderful story of the man who went to heaven and saw the heavenly junkyard and saw there the expensive car that was just in the heavenly junkyard because the person that was intended to on earth never could receive it because all the time they thought they would only visualize a cheap little Volkswagen. And so God wanted to give them a big Mercedes, but all they could think of was a Volkswagen. But it's not the Volkswagen that you wanted. It's not even the car that you wanted. It's the opportunities that the car is going to give you. Because opportunities have energy that can be returned to you. You know, if you're serving, if you're creative, you see, and you create a loop, you get part of something that has real magnetism. If you're only dealing with dead objects, the magnetism doesn't go anywhere. Does that make sense to you all? Can you see it? Comment? Question? Yeah, I remember when they were planning, they would say, I want a swing set, but then they would degenerate into what kind of swings do you want? And then there would be a fight about the type of swing, so <laughs> clearly it was not the right direction. No, that, that was true. I'd forgotten that. People would try to pin it down more and more, but even that very thought is you see how much smaller it gets? Or what you want is a place where children will feel loved and happy. You know, a place where children are welcome. You want a child-friendly environment. You want a safe environment for children. You want a place where people without children can embrace children as their own. That all is what the swing set means, right? But you see how free and expansive one is? And also, in a, in a different sense, how much more related to reality it is. Because when the more the, the more you're tuned into reality, a bigger reality, the more power you have. The more we define ourselves, see you start with the premise that this universe is is not really what it seems. That all of the physical things that we see around us are, are really, I mean, this is what science tells us. You know, our our common sense doesn't tell us this, but science assures us that this is all just a flow of energy in various patterns, right? Well, even if we think that's true, if we keep relating to it as if it's fixed objects, we're not really tuning into the power that's behind it. And so if we recognize that this world is just a flow of energy, and that if we can get our magnetism engaged properly, everything happens because of that exchange of magnetism. And so Swami talks about a few things that are relative to that. Hoarding, for example. If you stop the flow of energy, the energy doesn't keep going. You can dam up a spring, and it won't keep flowing. But if the energy keeps moving, then the water keeps coming out. But if you stop it, in other words, if we ourselves begin to think in terms of things being limited, 
Now, Swami quotes in here, um, right at the beginning of the second chapter, that statement of Jesus is, well, it's actually, yes, of those who have, to him who has shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him who does not have, even that which he has will be taken away from him. And you read that and you just always think, this is so unfair. <laughs> So, but what Swami says Jesus was emphasizing here is our own responsibility. And that he says abundance is something we must draw to us. And he emphasizes that a consciousness of abundance attracts abundance. And the consciousness of poverty, on the other hand, attracts poverty. Now, this gets to be very subtle. There are several aspects to this. When I was early on in my years at Ananda Village, and this was in the 70s, the mid-70s. Ananda Village is the first community that Ananda founded, a rural community. Um, those of us who lived there, we were, most of us at that time were in our early 20s, most of us were unmarried, no children, no real responsibilities, so we had a certain freedom. But we had an experience which is not common for middle-class Americans, really, which is we had no money. And I don't just mean a little money, I mean no money. Like, nothing. No insurance policies. You know, it wasn't so healthy to be able to go to the dentist for years. Um, but we just had no money, and we had to work very hard just to really pull something out of nothing. People would come to a non-village during those years, and it would look so just tacky and funky, and we lived in just shacks and teepees and old trailers. I lived in a trailer that I bought for $150. It was just such a fabulous I just loved it. It was glorious. But every once in a while when I would look at it objectively, and I would think, this is awful. <laughs> One of the David Gamow's uh, parents came to visit him, and they lived in a teepee at that time. They lived in a teepee happily for a number of years, and they sat around in the teepee with their parents, and only later realized that their parents spent the whole evening reminiscing about the Depression. <laughs> <laughs> cheerful way. <laughs> but what was so interesting about that experience was several fold. On an objective level, we apparently had nothing. And I learned because I made $50 a month, which at that time was enough to buy propane and food. And you know, every so often I'd get presents. I was very for I'm very fortunate because I'm in cancer and my birthday was in the summer. So I would sort of just slip a little bit into debt and then my birthday would come and then I would fall a little bit into debt and then Christmas would come. It was very difficult for those who, who were all on one side of the calendar, but I, mine worked just perfectly. You know, but, um, but what was fascinating to me was I, I just felt, I never felt deprived. I felt completely wealthy because I had everything that really mattered to me. I had friends. I had meaning and purpose. I had food and I had heat. That didn't matter. That was my bottom line. Some people tried to make it without heat. I didn't do well without heat. Heat was real important to me. But there was never in my mind any consciousness of lack. It was a consciousness, in fact, of enormous abundance. Money was just a means to having a life. Of course, life was simpler, and I have to admit that. But nonetheless, I realized that in that period of time, I. I forged something I was somewhat born with, I didn't really develop it, but this great sense that if you just, um, and this, this we have to get into more as we progress, but 
if you keep your real focus on what's really important to you, the means to achieve it will come. And the poverty consciousness, on one hand, is, but you have to do it with real energy. That, that's an important point, and this is what I was going to say here. Poverty consciousness, on one hand, is the consciousness of lack. I'm so poor, I don't have. I don't have this, I don't have that. Now, I want, I want to come back to this for a moment, so if I forget, I want to give another definition of poverty consciousness. If I say, what else was I going to say? That was it. But if you really feel, now, now think of it in terms of magnetism. Everything is about magnetism. If you know someone who's always, always talking to you about what they don't have, you know, I don't have any friends, nobody wants to go out with me, I don't have any nice clothes to wear, I don't have creative work, you know, I'm not a very attractive person, I don't have a very nice personality. Now, is that someone that you like call up when you really want to go out? <laughs> right? it, 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 the thing you have to realize is these very subtle laws can actually be easily grasped if you reduce them down to some direct experience that you yourself Okay. Those who have, more shall be given. Those who have not, even the little that, was taken, that they have will be taken away from them. Why would God be so unkind as to do that? Well, God is also a very impersonal magnetic force merely feeding back to us the magnetism that we ourselves are putting out. So if you know someone in your life who constantly emphasizes all the things that are wrong and all the things they lack in their life, you're not very magnetized to them, are you? Because there isn't anything inherent to draw more from you. So even the few friends that they have, they'll probably drive away after a while, or the little bit of love for them, you'll, you'll have a very difficult time giving them more. It's really just as simple as that. And the same, the corollary of that is, and it's, it's the same word, is the word gratitude. If you go somewhere and you see a beautiful necklace and you think it would be lovely to give to your daughter or to your friend and you hand it to them and you say, but this isn't the necklace that I wanted. You know, why did you get me one like this? Then you think the next time, it's just like you're not very inspired to buy them a present. It's like, why should I buy anything for them? Because whatever I give them, they're just going to complain about it. So when Divine Mother gives you a little apartment somewhere, and a little job, and you have a roof over your head, and you have food to eat. And all you think about is, this isn't a very nice apartment. This is a pretty crummy job. And maybe it isn't a very nice apartment, and maybe it is a crummy job. But when you keep emphasizing all the things that are not dynamic about it, what happens to your consciousness? Your consciousness becomes defined by what you focus on, right? It might not be what you aspire to, but what you focus on, all that we ever are in any moment, is the consciousness that we have inside of us. I mean, now that's, you, most of you really know that, but you can meditate on that for the rest of your life. That's all we ever are. When you're sitting there in a state of absolute despair, ask yourself, where is the despair? Can you hold it in your hand? You know, can you see it? Where is the despair? The despair is the thoughts and the feelings and the magnetism that's running through your mind. There's nothing inherent about any situation. Yogananda made, there, there's, there's so many statements of Yogananda's that if we only had that teaching, it would be enough. 
He said, circumstances are always neutral. Whether they are happy or sad depends entirely upon the state of mind with which we regard them. Right? That's why when David and Karen Yama were living in their teepee, they loved their teepee. They very reluctantly gave up their teepee. You know, their parents saw it as the depression. They saw it as deprivation. Karen and David didn't see it as deprivation. I lived in a trailer that was very small, and then one of my friends had a smaller one. But she was moving to a different area, and as she put it to me, I promised my trailer it would not have to move again because it was so old and enfeebled. So I, she said she asked me to switch with her. And I breathed in and I breathed out and I said, sure, you know. So I went into an even smaller one. It was charming. It was green on the outside and orange on the inside. It was just <laughs> And when I shut the door, grass grew up. Grass. So I always had ventilation, you know. But once I actually looked at it also and I said, this is a piece of junk. <laughs> but I hadn't noticed it was a piece of junk. I really, honestly, this was not affirmation. Because the trailer to me was the, the means to something else that I really wanted. Besides which, if this is what you have, if you love it completely, you're, you're much more likely to achieve to get more. If you accept with gratitude what the divine has given you, the divine will be inspired to give you more. And, and of course, more than that, you're happier inside. Because if, you, if it's what you've got, what, what good will it do? Now, so one definition of poverty consciousness is just the consciousness of lack, of lacking things. And poverty consciousness attracts more poverty because you're on a vibration of lack, of, of not having things. And it, it, you're not creative then, you're sad, you feel deprived, you feel profoundly separated, you feel mistreated, all these other things, none of which lead to the kind of forward-moving energy that'll get you out of that crummy place, right? Now, the other kind of poverty consciousness, which I really realized looking around our community at the time that we were sort of trying to get our magnetism together, was what I, what, what I realized was not really poverty consciousness at all, was what I began to call a little rich kid consciousness, which is that I can have anything I want without ever working for it. And so we have a sort of in-between, was what I've observed among a lot of us. On one hand, we fall into this pit of feeling deprived, and then we just kind of get on that cycle and fulfill Jesus' words in the Bible. And the other is that we just imagine that money is, is easy to acquire, you know? But, but money is energy, and you just don't get energy without putting out energy. It's just so simple. My husband has a, a well-deserved reputation for being able to um, be successful financially, make businesses work, and over the course of his life, he's been an entrepreneur several different times, and he has a, he has a good knack with it. Now he's retired from that aspect of things, and joyfully so. But before I, I married him, he, I knew him already, and he was in the context of Ananda, and I knew his history, and I knew he had this reputation for being good at money. At that time, I was in the position which I, I will share with you freely, which is I had a checkbook, I ran a business, I ran the checkbook of a, de of a department of Ananda in 1971. At the end of that year, Swami Kriyananda said to me, cheerfully and lovingly, 
as long as he was in charge of Ananda, I would never be in charge of another chair. <laughs> and I never have been. I honestly think now I could do it. At that point, I just didn't understand very basic things. To this day, I've never balanced a checkbook. I've been under the, I've either had no money or I've been under the protection of a competent man. <laughs> but in any case, um, so, so David's skill with money was like marvelous to me. I just thought that was such a marvelous thing. But I'm astute and I understand the difference between the surface and the depth of it. And when we got married then I started living with him and observing his life on a longer scale. I mean, I still remember very early after we were sharing a household, it was about 10.30 and I meditated and was going to bed. And David had meditated and was starting the night shift. That's all. You know, he pulled out, he was working at running the market at that time. He pulled out all the catalog. He was going to make the orders. And I began to realize the reason he was so successful is that he worked really hard. In other words, there was an exact relationship between the energy he put out and the energy he brought back. Now, he also worked smart, which is, you know, toward the end of the book, concentration and paying attention. But the first thing I noticed was simply that he worked very hard. And he didn't have the slightest expectation that money should come to you just because we affirmed it. Now we have the consciousness of abundance. And I have unfortunately watched a lot of people, what I, I, I used to call, I don't see it as much, I used to get what I would call refugees from the new age. <laughs> they would sort of come in the back door and be very embarrassed about the fact that, you know, they had been trying all these things when they hadn't been working. But the point is that the teachings sometimes were false, which is that you could somehow get a lot of energy back by not putting very much energy out. And so that's the other thing that you have to realize, that a kind of um, what people call poverty consciousness is really rich kid consciousness, which is somehow that I'm entitled. Now, now between having a very calm understanding that I am one with the great reality and that I have the power of the universe within me and thinking that I'm entitled, there's a, there's a great deal of difference. And the difference is, I can do anything if so I think, if I put my will to it, if I affirm it, if I, if I am willing, if I put out massive energy in a very intelligent, focused, concentrated way, if I take the trouble to learn to concentrate and to master my subconscious, then I can have everything. But if I just think I can do nothing and have everything, um, well, try it. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. So, so that's the other half of recognizing that energy, that money is a flow of energy, is that therefore energy is required. And that's why that, uh, one of the chapters that we're reading, the, the early part of this book here, is about willingness and dynamic energy and energization and focusing our attention. And I think we'll take a break and then we'll come back and talk about that. Okay. Teaching center is open for This is this is related. Um, when the last the end of my cycle in trailers, I returned the favor and. Um, had a woman give up a very big trailer for my medium-sized trailer, sort of at the end of my career in trailers. It was not 
a righteous request, but I made it of her with enough willpower that she agreed, unfortunately, for my karma. But um, even in the last trailer, and I think this is an important part of the story, and it was that this was a two-room trailer. It was very spacious, as trailers go. And, uh, but it felt, began to feel constricting to my energy. And I began to be aware of the fact that the fact that it was ugly um, was not such a good thing. Uh, prior to that time, the fact that they were ugly had never even crossed my mind. But I could just feel that somehow it was ugly and it really didn't suit me. And I could sort of see this picture in my head of what I really wanted, which is something which had sunlight. I saw sunlight and blue, beautiful blue, just color, white, blue color and sunlight. But I had no um, income to speak of. And in order for me to shift my focus to achieve that physical object, I would have had to do things, I would have had to think more about myself than I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to have it, but my focus was expansive onto building Ananda and serving God and doing what was needed for a project bigger than myself. But I felt inside myself um, that I, I genuinely needed this. And it didn't seem selfish, it just seemed concerned with myself. You understand the difference? But I, I knew that I couldn't shrink my consciousness in order to get it. So by that point in my life, I had had a, enough experience to, to have a certain faith in God. And I, I was able to say, if this is truly good for me, then Divine Mother will provide it for me. But if I try to grab it for myself, I won't have what I really want. Because what it looked like to me was an expansion of consciousness, but if I got it by contracting my consciousness, I wouldn't have it. And then I more or less forgot about it. It just went away. Then things happened, and I ended up marrying David, and we ended up having this little A-frame, and then we moved into this dome. I woke up one morning and saw the sunlight on the white wall. <laughs> moving across the beautiful blue carpet, and I went, <laughs> oh my God, this is it. And in between, I had really done nothing to achieve it, to attain it, nothing. Now, I had lifted one finger. But nonetheless, my magnetism for what it was, which was the opportunity to expand my own nature in a way that I knew was necessary, I had never given up on that thought. Does that, does that make sense? Right? And it wasn't any conscious effort to manifest. It was more like after it was all over, I saw that I had done the right thing. I had done it right. Which is what I really wanted was an expanded consciousness. And I could see that my, the place I was in had begun to constrict me. But I didn't think of it in terms of the thing. I thought in terms of the consciousness. Right? So it may be, in fact, that a BW bug is more suitable for you than a BMW. But nonetheless, Swami also says in the chapter on Don't Limit Your Demands, if you think too specifically, you can't respond to opportunities as they come to you. It's a very important point. Our, our, we think our, our, our energy is stronger for being very dogmatic and fixed on something, but it actually becomes brittle. And you're, that's exactly what you describe. 
which is that you were so fixed that the opportunity was right in front of you and you couldn't see it. There's a scene in the movie The Mouse That Roared, you know, which is a real old movie with Peter Sellers. If you haven't seen it in the last five years, you should go rent it. It's extremely funny. And there's this one ridiculous scene. And the whole scene is this little tiny kingdom wants to invade the United States and lose, so they'll get all this foreign aid, and then they'll, they'll solve their budget problems. And they accidentally land in New York when they're having an air raid drill, and so there's no one around. So they accidentally sort of triumph. And this is a big problem. And uh, so they, they capture certain soldiers, and they take them back. And, they don't, you know, they're just, it's a really just a goofy situation. And so they treat the, the quote, prisoners of war that they've accidentally captured like honored guests. And they're, you know, in the palace, and there's dancing girls, and all this wonderful food, and so on. But one of the soldiers is very rigid. And when, as soon as he arrives, he starts quoting from the Geneva Conventions, and he knows what his rights are, and he has a right to a five by nine foot cell, and a tin plate, and you know, two meals a day, and they keep saying to him, well, are you sure that's what you want? <laughs> and he absolutely insists, so he's in this little five-by-nine cell with his tin plate, you know, and everybody else is feasting with the dancing girls, you know. He's feeling self-righteous because he's got what he demanded, right? But of course, his dog autism didn't allow him to see what was really happening. And so that, that's what we're talking about. You have, don't mistake strength for dogmatism. See, what we're really focused on, I'll give you another example of the difference between dogmatism and commitment. Um, when, let me just see how this, let me get the whole story. We were, um, when I lived at Ananda Village, we had uh, neighbors, because they didn't have enough to do, their hobby was and still is to oppose Ananda's development. They're extremely anti-authority, and it's a rural place, and the only thing that looks like an authority is Ananda, so they oppose us. It's just crazy, but it's human nature. So our neighbors, we sort of, the people right around us, I mean, the whole world thinks Ananda's marvelous, the people right around us just for years have loved to go to the county and complain. So at one point, we had this great idea that the only, um, we were trying to develop our land there, the only, um, governmental, the only way that you can have control over your own land is to become a municipality. So we had a, you know, like a rural piece of property that looked more like a farm, and we decided we were going to make it into a California city. We almost succeeded. We came really, really close. And for 18 months, that was my job. I and this, and uh, Sheila Rush worked on it with me, and this woman named Dallas Atkins, who was also an attorney. Also, Sheila was an attorney, I know. The three of us worked on this for 18 months. We came very close. Um, it was so ludicrous because we were just playing the game because technically it was true. In fact, I mean, it was the farthest thing from a California city that you could see, but we almost made it because then we could have had control. Um, but I just worked really hard. We were, we were opposed by these huge numbers of people. The final hearing, we kept having to have larger and larger venues for the, for the public hearings. And uh, I'm very feisty and very quick with my tongue, so I was sort of the point person for a lot of public debate. And we'd have these meetings and people would ask hostile questions and I would answer them and I was quite comfortable doing it. 
Um, but the venues had to, get, had to get larger and larger, and finally we were like in the high school auditorium, there were like 800 people there, and the, the uh, county board was up there, and I was giving these speeches, and Sheila was giving these speeches, and Dallas was giving these speeches, and we were for something else. <laughs> but the county, and we were the, the only people who favored the project was the nonsense. And the, the county people had really been for it, but quite honestly, in the faith of all that opposition, they couldn't do it. But only in the face of all that opposition, they couldn't vote for it. Only one person voted for it. And, uh, and we were so determined to do this. This is a long story. We were so determined to do this, and had been for so long, that we immediately stood in front of the cameras. By now, it's you know, big news. Tempest in a teapot, but it's big news. I know Rajneesh was happening up in Oregon at the same time, so we got kind of all lumped together. So that made us a bigger story than we really were. They took over a town, which was quite different. We were trying to create our own from our own soil. But you know, we stood in front of the camera and we vowed that we would appeal and that this was a terrible decision because it was a terrible decision, and they had no grounds for it, and they just chickened out, and we were you know quite self-righteous about it. And, you know, we will go, and Sheila is an old civil rights worker, and we were, you know, on our way. And uh, the next day, a camera crew was coming from Sacramento, this is up in Nevada City, to film Kriyananda and, you know, follow up on this story. This was so long ago in Ananda that we had no telephones. There was one telephone in, the, in quote, downtown Ananda. There were two, actually, in downtown Ananda. So, you know, someone would phone you, and the message would get there, and then the message would wander over to where you lived, and then when you had time or could borrow a car, you'd drive down to the phone. And so we couldn't communicate very easily. So I met the film crew down where the village is, and we had to take like this three-mile road up to where Kriyananda's house was. We didn't have the paved road, we had this big dirt road around, and all the way up I'm going like crazy about how we're going to do this thing, we're going to peel, and you know, blue like this. We arrived there. Kriyananda says to this crew, this, this is not typical of him, but, but it was a great lesson for me. He says, um, if you'll give me extra time, he said, I have a statement to make, nobody else has heard it. And I say to Joe Tish, sort of right next to me, what is he talking about? <laughs> Joe Tish says, you don't know? <laughs> <laughs> and then Joe Tish resolves on the spot that he's not going to be the one to tell me. <laughs> so, he, you know, they get all set up, and Swami has this prepared statement. The first sentence, he's talking about the project in the past tense. You know, I'm very, very keen to words. The first sentence was the past tense, and it was like, <laughs> what's happening? And he said that even though he felt various things, he felt that in fact it was the right decision, because to make us into a town would be too much church and state overlap. And he just really didn't think it was the right thing. So that was that. So, I have to, without appearing to be the brainless minion <laughs> of a religious dictator, <laughs> I have to somehow act as if, yes, of course, I, I'm not <laughs> So we drive all the way back down, and I'm just talking about why this is such a good decision. <laughs> Quite simply, 
He'd been meditating that morning, and you know, this thing had happened, and instead of just being pig-headed about it, he thought, why don't I pay attention to what's happened, and try to tune in. And he said when he meditated, as he put it, to his own surprise, he immediately felt that we shouldn't go forward anymore, that it was really, that we had done enough, that, that a certain good had been accomplished, and it was finished, and that was that. Now, I have a tremendous respect for Kriyananda, and a tremendous history that, that causes me to listen very carefully when he says things like that. And so I suddenly had this wonderful, like, opportunity to find out where I stood with all this. And I had to really ask myself, what is it that I've been focused on? Have I really been focused on turning Ananda Village into a California city? Or have I really been focused on doing what I felt was the right thing to do? Now, for me, because I've been uh, on a long training course with Swami Kriyananda, when he redirects things, I'm redirected. And that's my own long-standing commitment. So if he's redirected things, that's more important to me than the thoughts I had before, because inevitably I will come to understand, let's say, over 30 years I have come to understand that if I don't know at the beginning, by the end I know what he, what he had in mind. So I had to just shift like on a dime from 18 months of just day and night to just, boom, putting it down, you know? And it was, it was really interesting. After a few days, I got really sick. I got a fever, a really high fever, which I almost never do. And by the end of that, when I got it, I was fine. But I said to Swamiji Prime, I said, this is what I've gotten it down to. I really don't mind quitting. I really don't mind losing. But it does annoy me that they won. <laughs> that was what I had before I got sick. I had this little bit of like, I could just let it go, fine, not a problem. But I, I had this little bit of antagonism toward those people. I didn't like that they won. But after I got the fever, I got up, I didn't care. <laughs> but for, for me, and for all of you, now this is the context of this, this is what Swami's talking about, don't be dogmatic, don't be rigid. Always keep your objective what it actually is, you see. It, 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 and, and as long as that is your objective, die trying. You know, don't ever give up, like Churchill said. Don't ever give up. Don't ever, 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 ever give up. Don't ever give up. Die trying. But make sure that you know what your objective is. So that when a new objective comes to you, you'll be able to say, oh, that's accomplished its goal, whatever it was. You know, in other words, in, in, in what you really want, and what all of us really want, is to do God's will. Perhaps your life is not so explicitly formed that you can really think of it like that. But still, if you have a, a lesser objective, and even great devotees have lesser objectives, you know, to build the community or to build the church or to expand something, keep focused on that, but always define it in its most flexible form. But don't let that make you lax either, because when we were, found, when we were starting the community, for example, here, I hope none of you have questions. Um, when we started the community up here, um, we were like, are we sure this is God's will? I mean, now you look back, it seems so obvious. At that time, we were, uh, Palo Alto was the first urban community. Now the model has been replicated, and it's still self-evidently a good idea. But so we were, it was one of, like, our first big project. You know, our little family here was the first big thing we've done. Now we've done a few, and we're a little more adept at it. So we were sort of like always wanting to do God's will. 
And at a certain point, Swamiji just sort of looked right at us and he said, look, this is self-evidently a good idea. You don't have to keep asking. In other words, now just do it. You know, now that you know that this is the course that you should follow, just keep doing it. But still, even in that, I said to Swamiji about the business with the city, the California city. I said, well, Swamiji, I meditated this morning. How come I didn't get that? <laughs> but then I had to honestly admit that I hadn't really asked. You know, I hadn't really checked in on that level with that kind of detachment. So it's a fine line that you walk of absolute commitment and so much detachment that if your directions change, you, you don't block it. You know, out of embarrassment, out of fear. I know when Swamiji put himself really forward in a certain situation once and it just blew up in his face, he said afterwards, if I chose to be, I could be quite embarrassed now. He said, but why should I bother? You know, I was sincere and it didn't work out so well. Do you see, one is very powerfully magnetic and one is limited in its magnetism. The results are answered. Okay, any other questions or comments? Yes. Sanskrit, but I don't know what it is. And you wouldn't either, so what would you do? Personal is hard enough, and that's English, okay? <laughs> but impersonal is being able to see yourself as if it wasn't you, in this, in this sense. But just see yourself as if it wasn't you. Here's an example that I'll give you. Um, there was a group of people, and there was one particular woman who, who, just, who defined selflessness as, as always saying yes. And she wasn't realistic. And so she would often agree to do things that she was later unable to do because they weren't realistic. Okay, but she never had, she thought it would be selfish to say, I need a vacation. I can't do six shifts in a row. I can't also teach those classes if I'm making lunch, you know, things, whatever the situation was. And it, as a result, she actually drew a lot more energy to herself because she was always blocking, you know, her promises were always creating chaos instead of facilitating everybody's life. Whereas a truly impersonal attitude would have been to say, you know, this is how much I can do, this is how much you can do, this is how much you can do. Everybody just puts on the table their, tr their true reality and we sort of look at it and we decide what the priority is in this. Know, and you see, well, that person is really more debilitated than me, so I'm going to stretch a little bit to take care of them, and then that person, however, really has more energy than me, so I'm going to let them take care of me. Because then everybody's needs will be impersonally considered, and the best will happen for all of us. To be selfless 
is not to sacrifice yourself. It's merely to see yourself in proper proportion to everything else that's going on. And, uh, and if you don't, you actually torque the system. Instead of it going better, it goes worse because it's subtly out of balance. The magnetism of it, magnetism is such a fabulous word. The magnetism of it goes off because uh, you're not really being objective. A person who's been compulsive or afraid or, or anxious or a thousand things. But if you're truly objective, the magnetism is very good. If you're truly impersonal. But sometimes the ego just so wants to be uh, generous that it wants to be generous more than it actually can be. And it ends up torquing the magnetism. Or even more than it's appropriate for you always to take advantage of me, whether it's your children or your friends or your company, doesn't create good magnetism for you either. It messes up your magnetism to imagine that I am always going to sacrifice myself for you and that all your little tiny needs are more important than any of mine. That creates wrong magnetism. Right? You see? And so that's very impersonal. You just look at it very objectively. This is what's happening. And you get so that you, you begin to be able to really trust yourself. And you begin to know that if I don't feel like doing it, there's probably a good reason. It's not merely that I'm a terrible person and I should be more generous. It can often be that it's just not there to happen. It's not right. The magnetism of it isn't right. You know, certain requests that people put on other people, the magnetism is not right. And if you're impersonal, you'll sense it. And practice. You just practice looking at it. If this wasn't me and I was looking at it from the inside, how would this actually balance? And then it takes a certain kind of courage to go into that and stand up for yourself. You know, to be selfless is not to be a doormat. You know, or not to have, it's just to, to do what's right. Is what, is what to, to do dharma, to do the right action. Does that make sense? The other part of it is when there's a want, and we have the blue light and sun, and to be able to see that that's not selfish for me. But, you know, where the difference is. If it, just because you enjoy it, doesn't mean that it's wrong. <laughs> I mean, Swami said to me very simply, he said, really, God doesn't want you to be unhappy. That's your imposition on the situation. Right? That's old Catholicism and old, you know, vengeful God. The more you, it's the old, the crucifixion is the definition of spirituality. The more you suffer, the more you must be spiritual. Now, it doesn't mean the more you have pleasure, the more you're spiritual either, but it's just somewhere in the middle. The more you do the right thing, the better things are. But just because you want it could be very good for you. To, to, to satisfy, Swami so made a very interesting statement once. He said, we learn a certain amount from having our desires frustrated, but we actually learn more from having them fulfilled. But we need to keep not attached. But nonetheless, if you, if you want something and constantly don't get it, but still want it, um, you always imagine that a certain kind of happiness will come to you if you could only get it. But if your desires are fulfilled, you get to experience exactly how much happiness were there, and then you can transcend it. Now, yes, you have to learn from having those desires fulfilled. Fulf having your desires fulfilled does not in and of itself make you wise. But, but what he was trying to balance is merely constantly denying yourself will not necessarily make you wise either. 
Now, transcending a desire is different. Transcending a desire is recognizing that it's not really going to give me what I want, and then you don't want it anymore. But merely to suppress it when you actually really do want it doesn't necessarily expand your consciousness at all. And often, the things that we want are exactly what we should have because they're going to take us to our next step. I really did need a more um, uh, harmonious and beautiful environment because my own consciousness needed to accept that as part of what God had in mind for me. Because my own spirituality was too much. I'm poor and everything is crummy. That must mean I'm spiritual. It's a little bit limited. You know? So I had to accept the fact that, look, outward circumstances do not define your consciousness. I had to be able to see it doesn't make any difference. You can be anywhere. It's all the same. Not everyone has to learn that. Some people need to let go of a lot of things. I had to move into it. Not because I ever thought they would make me happy, but because I had a different twist in my head. Everybody has a different twist. So I could feel, because of my years of discipline, when that desire came, that it was a righteous desire. And how do you tell the difference? By making a whole lot of mistakes. Which is a gigantic number, and then you get a pattern. But if if you don't have the courage to make the mistakes, you just freeze. That's why I said you don't learn just from being frustrated. You have to have the courage to also have fulfillment. And then you'll begin to find out. Then you can also ask your friends. I hope until they ask your mother, your mother usually knows. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions or comments or thoughts? Well, I think that we've covered enough of these chapters for tonight, so we'll see you next week, and we'll do whatever I wrote down, whatever it is, let me just say it, it's chapter 4 and 5, you are part of a greater reality, and you are part of an intelligent reality, there's a new fun stuff in there, okay?